All right, if you've got your Bibles, open up to John chapter 6. We'll finish, um, God willing, chapter 6 today. Father, we just thank you for your great mercy and your your grace, which you have demonstrated to us. I just pray that you help us to remember, to be thankful for everything and to uh, give thanks in every situation. And we just thank you for the kids and pray that you would just bless them as they uh, have Sunday school now. And yeah, thank you for their, their laughter and their voices. And we just pray that you will raise them up to be godly young men and women who will be um, serving you in the future. So we just yeah commit them to you now too in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we talked about verses 22 to 57. And that's where Jesus declared that he is a bread of life. And basically what that meant was... We must be fully dependent on the Lord for everything, recognizing that He is our spiritual nourishment and sustenance. And also we need to be devoted to, taken by, abiding in, and in love with Him. So just like we understand that we need to eat physical food, so we must see our need for spiritual food. We find our strength in the Word of God, both the living Word and the written Word. So one of the key phrases we heard last week was, Oftentimes it's because I have neglected the Lord in the cool of the morning that he can't be found in the heat of the day. This week, we're going to learn about Jesus choosing Judas as one of the twelve and why he did that, or possible reasons why he did that, and also why Jesus' message is often offensive to so many people. For now, in John chapter 6, read from verses 58 to 71. So it says, This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate manna and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. He said these things in the synagogue, as he taught in Capernaum. When they heard this, many of his disciples said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Knowing in himself that his disciples murmured or complained about it, Jesus said to them, Does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Verse 65, Then he said, For this reason I have said to you, that no one can come to me unless it were given him by my Father. From that time many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered them, Have I not chosen you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. So, interesting passage this one. So verse 58, this is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead, he who eats this bread will live forever. Last week we talked about the similarities between the manna and Jesus, the bread of life. The manna being small, round, on the ground, and tasting like honey, and how Jesus fits that description symbolically. Now we're doing a, a contrast. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. So the spiritual bread Jesus offers is even greater than the manna Israel ate in the wilderness because eating or partaking of the bread from heaven that Jesus offers, Jesus is the bread from heaven, that results in eternal life. So if you ate the bread in the wilderness, you lived through that 40-year period and went into the promised land. If we eat of Jesus, if we partake of Jesus, then we go into heaven. Very similar to John four thirteen and 14, the woman at the well. 
It says in verse 13 and 14, Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. So just like there's um, natural water and spiritual water, there's natural bread and there's spiritual bread. Now, it says we must eat it. If you, it's, it's not taste it, admire it, look at it, we must eat it. And um, I, I saw this list of things that people tend to do with food. Um, seeing a loaf of bread on a plate will not satisfy our hunger. <laughs> I'm really hungry, so I'll get myself a loaf of bread and I'll put it on a plate and I'll watch it. No. Knowing the ingredients in the bread will not satisfy our hunger. Studying a, piece of, a loaf of bread will not satisfy your hunger. Taking pictures of the bread will not satisfy our hunger. That's our modern generation, isn't it? Let's take some pictures, you know. Telling other people about the bread will not satisfy our hunger. That's interesting. Even telling other people about Jesus. We need to eat him ourselves. Selling the bread will not satisfy our hunger. Playing catch with the bread will not satisfy our hunger. And nothing will satisfy our hunger and bring us life except actually eating the bread. Jesus said, he who eats this bread will live forever. Now, when you eat something, it becomes part of you. So you are the food you eat. And so when we eat of him, we become like him. Verse 59. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? The Greek text makes it really clear that the disciples found Jesus saying hard, not because they couldn't understand it, but because it was offensive to them. So it's not that it was too complicated, it was offensive. They knew exactly what Jesus was saying. Jesus was in that culture, he was speaking to them, using their culture, using their own language, using their own figures of speech and stuff. And Jesus was demanding complete dependence upon him and a complete allegiance to him. You need to be consumed with me. We talked about last week. You be thinking only about me. You know, like the example I used about eating and drinking football or basketball, whatever it was. You know, he only thinks about football or basketball. So we we need to be at that place where he's all we think about. He's the focus of everything we do. And this is the sticking point for so many today. First is that Jesus is saying they need to completely depend on him. Well, why is Jesus saying that? Well, in John 15, 5, it says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. Okay? Jesus is the source of everything good in our lives. Now, what, what did the Jews think? Well, they, they had this legalistic mentality, and what Jesus was saying was in direct opposition to their worldview, which said, if you work harder, try harder, then you'll be more acceptable to God. That was, that's what the law is all about. And there's some churches today who are legalistic uh, without realizing it. And I was thinking about this, and I think everyone is legalistic to a point. Why? This is an application for us. Because nobody walks with God 100% of the time. Is that true? All right. So, And when we aren't walking in the Spirit, when we aren't walking with God, then we're not relying on His strength. Is that also true? Okay. And therefore, we're trusting on our own strength. So what's legalism? It's trusting in your own strength or working on your own effort to try and achieve something, right? So... This is what one of the reasons I think this message of the cross is so offensive to us with our prideful human nature. We take pride in ourselves, in our own accomplishments. We are always trying to do things in our own strength, using our own resources, using our own intellect and own wisdom. And before we're saved, that's all we do. And once we're saved, it's, it's, a, it's a transition from doing everything on our own strength to doing things by walking in the Spirit. And we spend more time walking in the Spirit and less time in the flesh, and that's becoming more mature. I'd like to just focus on Paul for a sec here and look at the change in his life. There's a massive change in his life. It's um, Philippians 3, 1-11. It says, 
Whatever happens, my dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. I never get tired of telling you these things, and I do it to safeguard your faith. Watch out for those dogs, those people who do evil, those mutilators who say you must be circumcised to be saved. For we who worship by the Spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised. It's our hearts, you see. We rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. We put no confidence in human effort. This is from the New Living Translation. I just like the way it says that. We put no confidence in human effort. And then he goes on. Though I could have confidence in my own effort if anyone could. Indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I am a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. So that's what Paul put his faith in. That was, that's what Paul valued for all those years as a Pharisee. And verse 7, I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. So what has he discarded? Everything that he's built up using his own efforts. His education. His standing in the community. His reputation. All those things which he's worked so long and hard to build up, he's just, no, don't need those anymore. It's not from Christ, I don't want it. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law, which represents works or self-effort. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with him depends on faith. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. Again, stop there, pause there for a sec. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. This is what walking in the Spirit is. It's just walking in the power of God. It's Jesus living his life through us. And so the life we live is not our own. It's, it's his life being lived through us. And that's this power that we have. Uh, it continues, I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death. Because when we follow him, it always results in suffering, because suffering is the testing that God uses to mature us. So that one way or another, I will experience a resurrection from the dead. Now, this is talking about earning salvation, and we understand that we're saved by grace alone, but we often fail to completely depend on God when it comes to our daily lives. Verse 10 in Philippians 3 tells us that we can experience His power in our lives as we come to know Him. So I want to apply this to us as Christians today. We understand that we need to be saved by grace. But sometimes we forget that we need Christ in every part of our lives. For example, to raise godly children, to love our wives as Christ loves the church, to work as God pleases and not man pleases and doing everything as unto the Lord, to have a genuine love for the lost. The minute we consciously or unconsciously take our eyes off Jesus and try to do things on our own strength, then we are similar to the Jewish leaders who tried to earn salvation. We are trying to achieve the results of living by the Spirit, by the strength of our flesh, by our own efforts. Does that make sense? So we're trying by our own efforts. When we're not, we're not walking in the Spirit, it's actually our own efforts trying to achieve the results of living by the Spirit, by the strength of our flesh, by our own efforts. And in Galatians it says, Having begun in the Spirit, are you being made perfect by the flesh? Now, for example, we know what the Bible says about loving our wives. Okay, we say, I've read that, I've, been, I've listened to a sermon on how to love my wife. I know all the things I need to do. After all, it can't be that hard to love our wives unconditionally and dwell with them with understanding. I mean, really, what could be so hard about loving our wives as Christ loves the church? 
or for wives submitting and respecting her husband, you know, submitting to and respecting her husband. So we try and we fail. Now, when we fail, we can do one of two things. The right thing is to repent of our independence and self-sufficiency, recognizing that our marriage is so far short of the glory that God desires for us, and then seeking to attain it or to you know improve our marriage by submitting to the Lord, trusting that the Lord will bless us and our marriage. Now, you know, as we seek the Lord, He changes us from glory to glory by His Spirit. Well, our marriages, and I'm just using marriage as an example, this applies to every area of our life. It could be work, it could be, you know, children, um, friends, whatever. But if we are changed, transformed from glory to glory by the power of the Spirit, then guess what? As we're changed, so will our marriage. And... (laughs) I believe our marriage, or in fact any relationship, can go no deeper than our own personal relationship with God. It can't go any further than our own personal relationship with God. You know, I think of it this way. If you've got a a chain, and it's all different size links, and that chain is only as strong as the weakest link. So the marriage is only as strong as the weakest person in that marriage. So we need to strengthen our relationship with the Lord, and in turn, that will strengthen our marriage. Especially with um, our wife and kids, we can't take them deeper in their relationship with God than we have been. We can't lead somewhere where we haven't been. So it's really important that we set ourselves up to be a, a Christ follower, a real disciple of Christ, because then we can lead them as we follow Christ. But if we're not following, then we can't lead them. Because what did Paul say? Imitate me as I imitate Christ. So if we're not imitating Christ in in a certain part of our life, then they can't imitate us. We can't lead them. Now, the other thing we can do, instead of repenting and seeing that what our marriage should be, and that it's not in repenting and asking God to, to strengthen us and improve that, we can say, you know what, I'm not doing that bad. And we can make our own rules up. We can make our own standards up, which are much easier for us to follow. If, if I just meet this standard, and I think my marriage is pretty good. And now, this may not be a conscious decision. And an example in my own life is communication. And in the past, and even now to a point, I've accepted what is in reality dysfunctional communication in my marriage as being normal. It's like down here in, in the communication, we still communicate, we're still, you know, we're not fighting all that much, but it could be so much better. And Marissa, if you ask her, she said, yeah, it could be so much better. But me as a guy, my standard is of what I think is acceptable for, for communication in marriage is down here. Marissa's is up here. She's probably way ahead of me there. And, um, but in the past, and, and, and unconsciously even now, I, I think I've, because I've only just been thinking about this in the last few days, as I've been thinking about this scripture, I've, I've, I haven't really asked God to help me in that area because I've thought I've been good enough. <laughs> you know, And so now I'm realizing that no, my, my communication with my wife is really not as good as it could be. And you know why we can um, stay thinking that I'm good enough is because we look at other people, and I've done this myself, and say, well, our marriage is a lot better than their marriage because they have all these things going on and they're fighting and they're separated. And and I think, oh, yeah, we're nowhere near that. Well, we might not be, but what if I turn my eyes to someone else who's got a much better marriage? (laughs) Then I need to be saying, hmm, okay. But the thing is that we don't look at other people we need to be looking at Christ. Our marriage is a picture of our relationship with God. And I need to be honest and evaluate honestly. When my, and again, the marriage is just an example here. We need to do this in every part of our lives. But I need to truthfully evaluate where I'm at in my marriage with the Bible, with God's standard. Am I loving my wife with agape love? You know, Am I praying for it? How is my level of fervency in my prayer for my wife, you know, things like that. And I need to be saying, you know what, I've got a long way to go. 
if we want to experience that joyful, loving, cooperative and fruitful marriage that could be ours, that God wants us to experience, then we need to ask God to change me. And as God changes me, he will change the marriage because as I change, the marriage will change. And that's part of walking in the Spirit is eating, partaking of the bread, is that as I partake, I become like Christ and therefore my relationships become more Christ-like. But that takes work. And now we come full circle. Now I'm back to work. So why am I saying this? Well, 1 Corinthians 15 verse 10. It says, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. So it sounds like a contradiction, but it's not. Relationships, work, whatever it is, it's going to take work. It's going to take effort. But it's not self-effort. It's God effort. It's us submitting to the Lord. And yes, we have to work, but it's not our energy. It's God's energy that we're using. So we're not going to burn out. We're not going to run out of energy. We're not going to run out of steam because it's God who's empowering us to do this work. So we can't just sit back and say, God, bless my marriage, without actually doing the hard yards and saying, you know what? I need to give this up so I can spend more time communicating with no distractions. And that's hard. I've got to give something up. I've got to sacrifice something. And then as I make myself more available to communicate, then our marriage will improve. Our communication will improve. That's a kind of thing that we need to do. But we do it, everything, as unto the Lord. So we ask God to help us to do that. In my own experience... I recognize that in every area of my life, but especially in my marriage and my relationship with my children, I have accepted as normal what is actually only a taste or glimpse of what it could be if I'm completely submitted and completely dependent upon the Lord. And my prayer for myself and for us is for a deeper relationship with each other, with our families, with our wives and children, with our friends and work colleagues, and and that we can become more Christ-like and be more of a blessing to them. And it all comes back to Jesus is the bread of life. We need to partake of him. He becomes a part of us. He, he needs to be, again, I'm repeating myself, but the analogy of he eats and drinks basketball, we need to eat and drink the Lord. He be, needs to become all we think about. He needs to become our focus. He needs to become the most important part of our life. Now, the degree to how much better it could be depends on the, how much I'm depending on Christ now. So you look around and there's some marriages who are really struggling and there's some marriages who are doing quite well, but they can still all improve. Okay, So some people are further ahead in some ways, but that's good. But there's always room to improve. So I've used marriage as an example, but consider the fruits of the Spirit, humility. Who finds it easy to be humble and not fight back or answer back? or get angry when when you're falsely accused and things like that. Who finds it easy to be patient? So this is another example where we need to work at these things, but it's not in our own self-effort. It's God's power working through us, that power that raised Jesus from the dead. And if we look at these fruits of the Spirit, for example, we need to be honest and say, without God's agape love, without God's life flowing through me, then there's no way I can put these things into practice. There's no way I can be this person. Now, the second point why the the gospel is so offensive, why what Jesus is saying is so offensive to some people, the first point was my sinful nature is prideful and wants to think that I'm self-sufficient and capable of doing things for myself. And so, yeah, God told me to do this, so yeah, I'm going to get there and do it. But there's another way which the world finds this message offensive, and that is, I want to be my own boss, I want to do my own thing. My sinful nature wants to satisfy the flesh, my fleshly appetites, but Jesus wants to bring joy to my spirit. So I, as a new creation in Christ, need to yield to what God wants me to do. Our sinful nature wants naturally to do the things that are against God's moral law, 
And many people don't come to Christ for the simple reason that they love their sin. They don't want to be obsessed with Christ. They want to be obsessed with their sin. John 3.19 This is the verdict that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And as we, you know, you read Romans 1 and 2, they will believe ridiculous things like evolution or follow other religions just to justify their sinful behavior. And um, I like Ray's comfort example. They're like a kid holding a stick of dynamite and being mesmerized by the sparkling fuse, you know. Oh, isn't it pretty? This sin feels so good. Bang! It destroys them. Proverbs says, in 1412 and 1625, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And Proverbs 21.2, every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the hearts. That means examines the motive. So as an unsaved person, they justify themselves and excuse themselves because they make reasons to justify their behavior, to make it seem that, oh, oh, you know, I'm better than this person, and at least I did this, or, or whatever, however they justify themselves. But if you look at Proverbs 21, verse 2, it says, Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the hearts, or examines a motive. So our motives are all upside down. Why? Because our sinful nature is completely and totally selfish or self-centered. Whereas what is Christ? He's selfless. So when uh, Christ is saying, you know, be focused on me, it means becoming selfless. And people are saying, I don't want to give all this up. It's too hard to be unselfish. Corinthians 1, 18 to 25 says, The message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. But we who are being saved know it is a very power of God. As the scriptures say, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of the intelligent. So where does this lead the philosophers, the scholars, and the world's brilliant debaters? God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish. Since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom. That's a pretty powerful statement there, isn't it? Since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom. Through the sinful nature, through our natural intelligence and natural wisdom, we can never know him. He has used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. Remember we looked at last week, it's a father who draws people. And in Romans 3, it says, no one seeks him. So verse 22 here, it is foolish to the Jews who ask for signs from heaven, and it is foolish to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended, and the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. But to those who are called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. This foolish plan of God is wiser than the wisest of human plans, and God's weakness is stronger than the greatest of human strength. God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish, and I think that's a really good way to sum this up. Because in our own strength, we think, oh, I can do that. That's foolishness. Honestly, I've just been looking at my own life, and I realize what a fool I've been, you know, sometimes. Often, actually. <laughs> thinking I can do things on my own strength. That is worldly human thinking. And it's foolish. Why is it so foolish? Well, how dare we compare ourselves to God and think that our intellect or wisdom or strength is anything close to what God is. God is infinitely more wiser, stronger, and intelligent than us. When we have swallowed a dose of humility, we start to realize this. And then we realize the dependence, the wisdom of depending completely on Christ and not wanting to do things our own way. So another way of looking at this is when we are self-reliant, we are swallowing the same lie, believing the same lie that Satan told Eve. She was deceived into thinking that eating the forbidden fruit would make her wise, Genesis 3.6. God knows what is best for us. When a person comes to Christ, they, they are acknowledging this fact. They are 
basically saying, God, I realize that you know what's best for me. I submit to you and I trust you. I'll give up my old way of life and live the new life as you lead me. I will obey you. And that's called counting the cost. So for us as Christians, we repent when we're saved, but we continue on this journey of repentance. And it's called sanctification. It's God changing us. God is always revealing to us areas of our lives that we need to give over to him, that we need to let go of. So repentance is a process, I believe, that starts at the moment of salvation and continues until we get our new bodies when we go to be with the Lord because there's always going to be something in there that we haven't quite given up yet. And he's going to take us from level to level, higher and higher, from glory to glory, but there's always going to be, until the day we die, there's always going to be something else that he's changing in us. And that's God's purpose for us, to, to make us into his image. So that's why... The um, <clears throat> Jesus message was so offensive, and that's why so many people turn away. Human wisdom says that we can do it on our own. Jesus says, no, you can't. All right, verse 61. When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, does this offend you? Hmm. Thousands of people probably have walked away. You remember there was 5,000 people fed? I'm kind of imagining Jesus, you know, all by himself with his 12 disciples now. And he's saying, all right, does this offend you? Because <laughs> they're complaining too. And then he says, what then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? Something that's really important here is that Jesus didn't preach just to please his audience. The truth of the word should convict and cause repentance, and not just make you feel good about yourself. That's um, seeker-friendly preaching, making people feel good about themselves, but it's only deceiving them even more. It's only as we repent that we experience the joy of abiding in Christ. So people don't want to offend people, and so they say, oh, yeah, you're fine, you're, you're doing great, and you know, God loves you, and, and so people don't repent of their sin, and then they don't experience the joy of walking in the Spirit because they're not repentant. What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? And Guzik says, Jesus is saying, if all this has offended you, what will you think when you see me in glory and have to answer to me in judgment? Better to be offended now and get over it than to be offended then. <laughs> Verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. So this, uh, in, in the way I think, this could be like the theme statement for the whole message of, of Jesus, especially in this chapter. It is a spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. He is continually calling us to put our heart and focus on spiritual realities, not on fleshly or temporal things, temporary things. It's only by the Spirit that we can receive revelation. It's only the Spirit who teaches us, who leads us into all truth. And the references there are John fourteen twenty six and sixteen thirteen. It's a good summary of I am the bread of life, you need me. And it's only the Spirit that brings life. It's interesting, it says that the words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. So the words that Jesus speaks here, the spirit takes and uses to change us. And if you go to Ephesians, the sword of the spirit is the word of God. So the spirit and the word are connected. It's as we, by faith read the Word of God, then the Spirit will use that to change us. It says in Hebrews that um, the Word didn't benefit the Israelites because it wasn't mixed with faith. So as we read the Word in faith and exercise our faith to actually put it into practice, then God will change us. Verse 64, But there are some of you who do not believe. 
For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, Therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. Jesus rebuked their own carnal, fleshly motivation in following him. If they do not seek him by the Spirit, instead of seeking him as a walking bakery, (laughs) uh, then they have not come to him at all. That's basically what Jesus is saying. They're all following him, but for the wrong reason. And when Jesus rebuked them and revealed their fleshly motivation, then they stopped following him. Of those who come to God in the flesh, as you know, by their own self-effort, as these came to Jesus, it can be said that they do not come to God at all. Instead, they are coming to a false God, a give-me God. They do not come as it has been granted to him by my Father. So they're coming to this God where he satisfies their physical appetites. He makes their life better. He'll give you a better life. Maybe a bigger house or more money or whatever it might be, better health. But that's not the true God. They're not coming as being drawn by the Father. They're coming to get their physical needs met. And Jesus is saying, no, it doesn't work like that. Another way of looking at this is they have made an idol, a God in their own image. Verse 66, From that time many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. And then it says that Jesus ran after them, pleading, No, don't go away. Does it say that? (laughs) No, it doesn't say that, does it? He didn't plead with those who left. He didn't say, let me explain further. He didn't say, I'm sorry for offending you. He didn't reason with them because he knew that they could not understand unless the Father had drawn them. Sometimes, and I've done this before, we can spend hours talking and trying to convince people and change people And it's like, you know what? Why bother? Because that person has not been drawn by the Father. I'm trying to convince him with an intellectual argument, and God is not drawing them from the inside. And it's a it's a waste of time because if the unless the Father is drawing someone, they cannot come. There's a time when God will draw someone, and then they'll be receptive to the gospel. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, a lot of these people. We're not saying that these people are doomed to hell now because they didn't respond here. A lot of these people, you know, at Pentecost, probably some of them would be some of them who responded. But at this time in their lives, they're not being drawn by the Father. Later they might be. That's why we need to pray for people. So Jesus was relaxed. He could offend people. He could speak the truth and without fear of anything. He wasn't scared. He wasn't stressed. He just relaxed. I just need to do what God wants me to do. He wasn't striving, struggling, straining to persuade people. He just shared the truth, knowing that the Spirit would speak to people's hearts and give them application as the Father leads them. So here's a challenging thought for today's church. Once Jesus effectively discouraged every fleshly motive for following him, many stopped following. Now, If we did that in today's church, if we effectively discourage people from coming to church for every fleshly motive, how many people do you think would still come to church? (laughs) So I'll say that again. If we could do the same thing today, if we could effectively discourage every fleshly motive for following Jesus, every non-eternal, non-spiritual motive, how many would stop following him in our churches today? Because many people or many churches encourage people to follow Jesus to fulfill their fleshly motives. And they promote Jesus as like a product to fix your life, just like bread will fix your hunger. But that's like a sales and marketing approach, but it's not giving people the true reason to come to Jesus. So we need to be careful when we witness to people that um, we don't use that God will give you a good life type thing because it's not true in a physical sense. We've been praying for the people in um, Somalia today. Become a Christian and God will improve your life. Do you think that's going to work out for them? Do you think it's going to work out for the top 50 most persecuted countries in the world? 
become a Christian and God will improve your life? <laughs> no. The Bible says that if you believe in me, you will suffer persecution. It's a promise. We look to a heavenly kingdom, not to a, a physical kingdom. And the result is that we get false converts. And Jesus will end up saying to them, Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I never knew you. That's Matthew 7.23. Right, verse 67. Then Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? Straight to the heart. You know, all right, what's your choice? Are you going to go away like all the others? There's thousands of people, you know. Jesus is all alone. No one is coming for healing anymore. I don't like what you're saying, Jesus. You're offended me. I'm, I'm not sticking around here. And now he says to the disciples, do you want to go away too? So Jesus is relaxed. He doesn't. He knows that the people that the Father is drawing will stick around and the people that the Father is not drawing will take off. That's okay. So I, I, in my mind, I'm picturing thousands of people walking away. Crowds and crowds just dissipating. And Jesus is asking if the 12 will go. He's not insecure. <laughs> He's just saying, do you want to go? He's giving them a choice. And he's searching their motives, and he searches our motives too. What's your motive for following me? That's what he's asking here. What is your motive for following me? And the reason that God gives us tests is to reveal our hearts. If we pass a test, then we know that, oh, well, you know what? I've been, I'm strong in that area. If we fail the test, then God has revealed to us, well, I've got some work to do. I need to spend more time with the Lord. What did they say? Where else can we go? Asked Peter. <laughs> and uh, too often our answer is sport, uh, the movies, uh, blockbuster video, the pub. People go anywhere else to try and get their physical needs met, to blank out the pain. But he knew, Peter knew that all that stuff was bankrupt, that it wasn't going to satisfy. And as a result, the disciples are examples of people being willing to follow even if they didn't understand it all. And sometimes we're not going to understand everything God tells us to do. We're not going to understand his will perfectly, but we need to be willing to follow and obey him. Guzik says, If we have not come to the place where we look to God and say, where else would I go, even in hard or confusing times, then we have not come very far with Jesus. That was a challenging statement that um, yeah, he makes. If we have not come to the place where we look to God and say, where else would I go, even in hard or confusing times, then we have not come very far with Jesus. You think of all the people who um, struggle in their marriage, and what do they do? They start drinking with their mates. Where else can I go? To the pub. Or I start taking drugs. Where else can I go? I'm going to start taking drugs. Or they get lost in their work. Where else can I go? I'm going to work harder so I have to spend less time at home, drown out my sorrows and work. And so we find ways. Where else can I go? On the internet, I'll look up news articles so I can be, you know, or we'll play games on the computer, whatever it might be. One of the marks of a mature believer is that when the times get hard, it pushes us closer to the Lord. Oh, man, this is so hard. I need to read my Bible more. I need to pray more. I need to spend more time in fellowship. You have the words of eternal life. So... You think about all the miracles that all the disciples had seen. Healings, um, and, and later on there's going to be a resurrection. There's, there's lame people raised up, the hands stretched out, the, the blind people seeing, the demons cast out. But that's not the reason that Peter and the boys, <laughs> if I can call the disciples that, that's not the reason they believed in Jesus, that they followed Jesus. They said, you have the words of eternal life. Their faith was based on truth and not by signs and wonders. Not by miracles, not by entertainment, not by hype or hoopla, <laughs> but upon the word of God. Some people say, we don't want to study the Bible, we just want to move in the Spirit. Yet, I don't know how much more Spirit-filled a meeting can be than one in which the words of Jesus are proclaimed, for the words he speaks are Spirit and life. Verse 69, And we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so note the order here. We believe and now we know. Okay? It's not now we know 
So now we believe. It's now we believe and now we know. Why? Because the way of the Lord is always believe first and then you will know. Because it's only through faith that we can understand. Hebrews 11.3 Verse 70 Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? Strong words. He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. Now the crowds turned away, the twelve had chosen to stay. Jesus says to them, there's one of you who's going to betray me. And that brings us to this question, why did Jesus choose Judas? (laughs) Would you have chosen Judas? If you were Jesus? Jesus had to die on the cross for the sin of humanity, and Judas was a part of that plan, But why did it have to be one of his inner circle who betrayed him? Why couldn't it have been a Roman soldier, a Pharisee, or a government leader, or someone else? Why did it have to be one of his own? Well, here's some reasons. One, it fulfilled Bible prophecy. So Psalm 41.9 says, Yes, my own close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate of my bread, has lifted up the heel against me. So Jesus knew the word. And he knew what uh, the Bible said about that. Jesus chose Judas in order to relate to us personally, because guess what? Just about every person, I think, is going to be betrayed at least once in their life. And we can look to Jesus and we can see that he was tempted in all points like we are. In every way that we've been hurt, he's been hurt. And he's demonstrating that he understands what it's like to be betrayed by a close friend. Another reason I believe that Jesus chose Judas is because Judas is an impartial witness to his moral excellency of his perfect life. Now, what did Judas say? Do you remember when he threw away his 30 pieces of silver? I have betrayed innocent blood. Okay? So Judas, the one who was out to destroy Jesus, and the one who ended up hating Jesus, the one who was turned out to be Jesus' enemy, his testimony of Jesus is he's innocent. He's done nothing wrong. So this, you know, your friends will say anything about you that you want them to say, but your enemies? The only way Judas could say this is if it's true. Jesus chose Judas in order to enlighten us or reveal to us hypocrisy. And you know how people say, oh, the church is full of hypocrites. Yeah? Especially non-believers. Well, that's not a new revelation. (laughs) Judas is probably the greatest hypocrite that's ever lived. He was doing all the things that the disciples were doing. He was saying all the right words, you know, but he was stealing the money. But he was doing it on the side, so no one knew. And what did Jesus say about the wheat and the tares? He said, Jesus warned that along with the wheat, tares were sure to grow, Matthew thirteen twenty four to 30. And even in his own circle, there were tares. And so we need to be aware that within, this is the next point, in our own circle, there could be, or hopefully not within us, but, <laughs> you know, within a church, um, you know, we don't, look to see, oh, who, who's the false convert here? Oh, it's the guy with the black hat, with the beady eyes, with the, the handlebar moustache, you know. you know, It's obvious who's the false convert, it's him. No. No one even suggested Judas. On the contrary, when they were sitting around the table, they all said, is it me? Is it me? They, they couldn't figure out who it was. And so it, it's a warning to us that um, sometimes it could be people among us who are not saved. And there could be betrayers. So I think the last reason, well, my last reason for Jesus choosing Judas is to demonstrate his agape love. What did Jesus say to Judas in Matthew twenty six fifty? But Jesus said to him, Friend, why have you come? I reckon Jesus is giving Judas one last chance to repent before he goes through this diabolical deed of betraying the Son of God. Maybe we can relate to Judas. Maybe we've been demanding our own way. Maybe we've been um, vulnerable or given into bitterness. Maybe we're disappointed in the Lord. 
Judas was disappointed in the Lord. Jesus could have been made king. And Judas, in Judas's mind, that would have been great. Maybe God isn't doing the things that you're expecting him to do. Maybe you're disappointed in him. But Jesus still calls you friend. He still calls me friend. And he always gives us another opportunity to repent. And so the Lord, when we come to him today, even when we're doing the wrong thing, he says, why have you come? I'm giving you one more opportunity to come to me, another opportunity to repent, to restore our relationship. So for us as Christians, we can take advantage of the graciousness of, of our Lord Jesus right now or at any time. And we can understand that he is forgiving, generous, merciful, and gracious. That's his nature. We can say, I surrender, Lord. I'm no longer demanding my will or fighting for my own way, wanting you to answer my prayers in my way. Today I give myself totally wholeheartedly to you. So I pray, Father, for us today. Lord, there's a lot in this chapter. and uh, Lord, help us not to be offended by you, but to realize that you have the words of eternal life. You have truth. And it, it leads us to eternal life. In you, we have eternal life. It says, he who eats of this bread will never die. Lord, if we're totally consumed by you, totally taken by you, if we're abiding in you, walking in you, then Lord, we're going to experience the joy, the peace, the patience, the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. And we're going to experience the peace that passes understanding. Help us to um, realize that Lord, um, Judas was a betrayer, but Lord, you still loved him. And no matter what we do, no matter how much we sin, when we sometimes stumble and fall, Lord, you never stop loving us. You still call us friend. And for those who aren't saved, the invitation is always open. If anyone comes, and uh, whosoever believes. So we just pray, Lord, that um, you will continue drawing people to yourself and use us as your hands and feet to plant the seed and water the seed. But you bring the increase, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.